Amen. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. We are going to finish up and conclude this series that we've called Amazing, talking about grace and kind of, uh, like we said at the very beginning, getting under the hood of looking at what are we really talking about when we talk about the grace of God. And, and I hope that you have come to a better understanding over these past three weeks and hopefully today of understanding just what grace is. When we talk about it, when we sing about it, just the depths of it and its work in our lives, the, it, God's work in the world through grace and, and just how that operates. And so I hope that you're coming to a better understanding. But this morning, uh, we're going to talk about a grace that is alive And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 today because I do understand this, that as much of a theological topic as grace is, a theological understanding, a good theological understanding of of what we believe and understand about grace can only take us so far. We can talk about grace and have a good, deep theology of grace, but unless we learn how to practice grace... Unless we learn how to see the change that grace brings about in our everyday life, then, then all the knowledge and theology in the world won't really do a whole lot of good. And so I want today to be very practical um, in what we look at. And I want us to go back to, um, we're going to look at verses 12, it says through 17. We're really only going to look through verse 14 this morning. But before we look at those verses, I want you to open up your Bibles to Colossians 3. And I want you to review, just in your Bibles, not on the screen, um, the verses prior to um, verse 12, namely 5 through 10. Um, And if you remember, we've already read some of that. We've already looked at those in a previous message. But there, Paul gives a list of, of characteristics of the life before grace. Basically, he says, this is what you used to be, and this is what you used to walk in. And he gives a list of those things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And he says, do not lie to one another. You remember we talked about how grace frees us from sin. And before we experience the work of grace in our life, we are literally chained like we are chained to a rock of sin. And it doesn't matter how much we try to get away from it or change our lives or modify our behavior, we're we're destined to always choose sin because we're bound to it. But what grace does is bring freedom. When Jesus breaks the chains like we've been singing Chain Breaker, we are freed from that sin and we're no longer tied and bound to it. We are given the power in grace to be able to refuse and say no to sin, to be able to turn away from it. And he lists in those verses all of those things that we should be putting to death in our life on a daily basis. And what I think is common if we look at those things, all of them... Have to do with relationships with people. If uh, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, lying, all of those things are, are sins that break and destroy our relationships with each other. And so those are things that have to be continually 
be put to death in our lives. And we can't do that without grace. But I think the reason that those sins apply so much in the context of relationships and the reason Satan wants to use those to destroy relationships because the greatest tool you have to share the gospel with someone is your relationship with them. The greatest tool that we have to be able to spread the gospel and, and, and for grace to come out of us into the lives of other people as we've been talking about are relationships. You think about when you came to Christ. You think about the moment that you gave your life to Christ and what led up to that. You, you, you say, well, maybe you say, well, I was in a church service like this and, and I just felt the Holy Spirit draw me in and I'm, I made a decision to trust Christ in a church service. That's awesome. You, but who, why did you end up in church? Who got you to church? It was probably a person. It was probably somebody in your family. Might have been a friend, coworker. Because of a relationship you have with somebody, they said, Hey, I want you to come to church with me. And maybe that was the beginning of God revealing Himself to you and you coming to know the gospel and coming into a relationship with Jesus. A relationship with Jesus through a relationship with a person. So if Satan wants to destroy our ability to share the gospel with people, all he's got to do is get in our relationships with each other. And if he can destroy those, then we don't stand a chance. So I want us to look in Colossians 3, starting in verse 12, 12 through 14 here. And after he's told us in the previous verses what we should put to death, today we're going to see what grace should bring to life in our relationships with each other, in our relationships with the world. So that's why I'm calling it a grace that is alive. We can talk about grace as a theological term and a principle, but how do we make it a living thing in our life? So Colossians 3, chapters, I mean verses 12 through 14, this is what it says. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, we're only going to look at these three verses because they, they're loaded. They're loaded full of stuff. Um, but here's the, big, here's the big idea for this morning I want us to springboard off of. By God's grace, a change of identity results in a change of behavior. You say, how do I, how do I know that I'm in Christ? A change of identity will result in a change of behavior, but both of those things are by grace, not by works. This isn't an issue of, well, um, I've got to change my behavior in order to claim my identity as a believer. No. No, your identity is set. That's a work of grace. But guess what? You're changing your behavior is a work of grace too. Me changing my behavior is a work of God's grace in my life. 
because we can't do it on our own. If we could do it on our own, we would have been able to correct our behavior enough to make ourselves righteous. And that can't happen. It's never going to happen. And so in these verses, Paul, after saying this is what you should put to death, he gives us a list of the things that should be coming to life in us as believers. And I think we're going to look at this list this morning and I want us to self-evaluate. Basically to say, how am I, how is grace living itself out in my life in my relationships with other people? So let's look, let's just start with verse 12. Because of the seven things, I'm going to give you a list of seven characteristics. This is almost like a character sketch of grace. Because when we talk about grace, grace encompasses a lot of things. What are some of those things that are a part of that character of grace? So five of the seven that we're going to talk about are are right here in verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, you would be tempted to just skip right to the list in verse 12 and say, okay, well, what's the first thing on the list? I'm reading, reading, compassionate hearts. That seems to be the first thing. You're right. But there's a principle in the words before that that are very, very, very important, that if we don't understand those first few words of verse 12, then we won't understand any of the rest of it. We talked about a change in our identity, and the change that God brings in our identity results in a change of our behavior. Both of those are works of grace, right? Can't do either one of those on our own. But there's a difference. Verse 12, Paul begins and he says, put on then. The then being as a result of what has happened, as a result of grace coming into your life, put on these things. And so what do you think of when you think of put on? Clothes. Like you did that this morning. I'm very glad. Thank you very much. For putting on some clothes before you came to the house of God. You, you open up your closet, you look and see what you've got, and then you make an active decision. You have to decide what you're going to put on, then you've got to reach in there, take it out, and you put it on. Um, that's literally what that word means, to put on clothes or to envelop in something. What Paul is telling us in that first phrase is that the things that I'm encouraging you to put on are the things that you have an active role in making happen in your life. Like, it takes some effort. There there is a role that you play in that. But then immediately, after he says, put on then, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. In that phrase, you have no active part. And what I mean by that is you didn't receive grace because you had any active role in receiving it. It was by God's choice because he calls you God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God chose to pour his grace out on you. So as a person who has received that status, that identity from God, that's the the identity The behavior that results from the identity is now it's time to put on the clothes that match the identity that you've become. So put them on. There's an active role that we play. 
Because I think sometimes we read verses like this that talk about the character of a believer and we think that those things just automatically happen. The longer we're Christian, the longer God will just make these things come about in our life, like pixie dust. Like God just sprinkles his spiritual pixie dust on us and we just become more humble and we become kind and we become gentle and we become patient. No, we don't. You know why? Because I've seen a lot of people in church that are not any of those things. There is, a, there is a discipline that we're called to, and there's an active role. We're not active in, in, in our identity. God establishes that. But the behavior that comes after, he says, put these things on. That means you play a part. You've got to take it out of the closet and put it on. And so let's look at that list. There's seven of them. Five of them are in verse 12. That first one is compassion. He says, put on compassionate hearts. That word compassion can be translated pity, mercy, or sympathy. Jesus, there's a picture of Jesus in Matthew 9, 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There was a deep gut-level compassion that came from the heart of Jesus when he saw people who were helpless. When he saw the injustice, he saw people that were chained to sin and didn't even know it. And there was a gut-level compassion, not like when you see something unfortunate on the news, some tragedy, and say, oh, well, that's too bad. That's not what we're talking about. This is a deep, churning compassion for people. So Paul says to put on compassion, which means we can't grow indifferent to suffering in the world when we see it. We can't just look at it and overlook it and say, oh, well, that's, oh, that's sad. And then go back to living our American dream. Because there are people all around us who are suffering. And if you look at the ministry of Jesus, who were the people that he intentionally went to they were the they were the ones who were who were beaten down the ones who were broken the ones that society had just pushed over to the edge basically to get out of the way while we live our life and Jesus went to those people and I, and I'm proud of our church because we we do outreach on a monthly basis we we try to reach out to those people like that but this is a compassion that 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 can't be overlooked. This is a compassion that says, I can't just sit here and watch. I've got I've to do something. And so when it comes to evaluating ourselves, how do we develop compassion? You may say, I just, I struggle with that, Eric. I'm just not a very compassionate person. I think one of the keys to, to developing or practicing compassion is just to understand who we were when Jesus found us. Where were we? What kind of state were we in? There were some people who were obviously in need, but there are so many more people, and maybe some of us were those people who walking around think they had it all together and thought we had everything we needed, but we were dead. We were empty. We had nothing. And the compassion of Jesus in grace comes to us when we didn't even know we needed it. Because he cares for us. He loves us. 
He says, because of grace in you, compassion should be something that you put on. The second thing is kindness. Now, kindness is a little different. It's similar to compassion, but it's a little bit different. Grace, um, kindness is that thing that mellows what could be harsh. Kindness softens what could be really, really abrasive and hard. Um, Jesus used this same word when he talked about, when he said, take my yoke upon you, and he said, my burden is easy, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the same word, the same Greek language Jesus used in that when he's describing following after him. That the kindness of God toward ungrateful people, toward evil people. And that's where we get hung up because we don't want to be kind to ungrateful people. We don't want to be, our flesh doesn't want to be kind to people who do things wrong. We want to judge them. We want to accuse them. We want to punish them. In Romans chapter 2, Paul says this in the context of saying, look, don't you understand that when you pronounce judgment on other people, you're pronouncing judgment on yourself? Because you are them. Because you're law, you were lost too. You were sinners. Verse 4 says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The kindness of God. The fact that God could deal with us very harshly, but he chooses not to because of his kindness. His fierce judgment of sin is deserved. And listen, that does not take away the fierceness of God's judgment and wrath. God's judgment on sin is wrathful and fierce and strong. But in his kindness, he offers us mercy. Were it not for the kindness of God, there would be no mercy and we would be left subject to the punishment that we deserve. But the kindness of God is extended to us through mercy. When I think about that in the context of relationships, I wonder, do I, do I pour, do I say things in a harsh way that aren't, isn't necessary? Do I deal with people in harshness in a way that sometimes they don't deserve, but maybe sometimes they do deserve. But just because they deserve it doesn't give me a, give me a loophole to not be kind. Because that, that's what we're called to. We're called to kindness. Sometimes our reaction to things and our reaction to people can be really um, abrasive and fast and hard like, like, like dynamite. With a really short fuse. And, and, and we will say things and do things just really harshly. There's a kind way to do things and say things and then there are harsh ways. This is choosing kindness to soften what, what could be really hard. But to choose to make it light. Out of that compassion. So the kindness of God should be evident in us and the way we deal with one another, being kind to one another. That's a simple thing. It's almost hard to define it. Kindness almost defines itself. 
But we're called to that. That's something that we should be putting on constantly. Number three is humility. And it's interesting when we talk about humility and we put it in the context of history. In this culture, this was, this was the, the Greco-Roman world, Greek culture and philosophy were king during this time. And actually, in the ancient Greek culture, humility was seen as a negative thing. It was something that was not a virtue that was to be pursued. It was something that was to be rejected. Self-promotion and self-love was more of a virtue in the Greek world. But it was only until Christianity and the church began to grow in that historical context to where humility became a virtue. And and humility is the opposite of self-love and self-promotion. Anytime you elevate yourself, anytime you promote yourself, whether it be in your own mind, in your own heart, or anytime I elevate myself over someone else, or promote myself, that's the opposite of humility. Humility doesn't seek to do those things. And the, and the greatest example I think we have of humility is the incarnation. It's Jesus. Who did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he emptied himself. And came in the form of a servant. When we think about almighty, omnipotent God of the universe coming into the world the way he did. That's, that's the most visible picture of humility we will ever see. Humility is counting other people more significant than yourself, which we're instructed to do numerous times in the New Testament. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, in the second half, says, Clothe yourselves, again, that same picture, putting on all of you with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is such a big deal to God. He's actually in opposition to people who operate in pride. That's why Jesus had such a hard time with the Pharisees. That's why the Pharisees had such a hard time with Jesus. Jesus walked in true humility, was the embodiment of humility. They carried a false humility. And we all struggle with that too. To some extent, some more than others, if I ever encounter somebody who has to tell me how humble they are, that probably means you're not. Um, And we as believers love to be seen sometimes, especially when we do good things. And sometimes we, we negate the effectiveness of the good things we do in the name of Jesus because we also tag on self-promotion at the end of it. We love doing good things for Jesus, but we love even more for other people to see us do good things for Jesus. So we have to talk about it. If you, were, if you guys came to the Sky Peterson concert Sunday night, Sky even talked about that, and she had written a song that was just a couple of weeks old that she did for us, and she... Um, she called it Groceries, and it was about... She said, I literally helped a lady with her groceries the other day um, at the grocery store and she said as I was doing that I immediately became aware that there was a particular friend that I that I wished could watch me help the lady with her groceries 
she thought, oh, I wish so-and-so could see me do this. And she immediately realized how not like Jesus that was. So that's humility. The fourth one, meekness in the ESV. Your Bible may say gentleness. And this one can be tricky because we sometimes um, equate meekness and, and gentleness with weakness or spinelessness. And that is absolutely not what meekness means. It actually takes a whole lot of strength to be meek. Meekness in the biblical text means a willingness to suffer injury rather than inflict it. A willingness to take on suffering rather than to dish it out to someone else. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 I've given you. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. See, think about it in this context. If we're with someone who they've been caught in a transgression, they need to be be corrected, and that's something that we all need. We all need correction in our life. But there's lots of different ways that we can correct other people. And we don't always do it with meekness. We don't always do it with gentleness, especially if what they have done has caused us harm and caused us hurt. But meekness, gentleness, recognizes its own sin and is willing to suffer the burdens of other sin. Like, I can correct you, but when I correct you, I have to do it in a spirit of gentleness and meekness because I understand the same sin that came out of you that did harm to me or to someone else has also come out of me and harmed other people. I I have to come as, as one guilty person to another guilty person. Willing to suffer injury rather than inflict it. Man, I think about meekness in Jesus I mean think about the garden and think about the passion and those hours before Jesus was crucified this is, this is literally what we see in him a willingness to suffer injury rather than inflict it Jesus had all power to do all things and he could have snapped his finger and wiped out every enemy But he endured it. He endured it for the sake of grace. He endured it for the sake of forgiveness. So that's how you and I have experienced grace through the meekness of Jesus. And so because of that, we we can't pour out harm on other people. It's okay for us to endure some suffering. Sometimes we get really caught up in our in our rights as people, right? Well, that's not fair. I shouldn't have to deal with that. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's a good thing. I don't think we always have to defend ourselves. Because usually our idea of defending ourselves is 
to give something right back to somebody else. I think we see in Jesus this character of gentleness and meekness. And I've learned that from other men. In many, I've learned that especially in ministry. And I try to pass that principle on to these guys. And I hope I'm a good example as, as much as the men who came before me, who, I've, who have pastored me, have been an example to me. Guys like Tim Burnham, guys like Billy Fricks, who have, who have taught me that you don't always have to defend yourself. Jesus will defend you. Amen. Jesus will do that for you. You don't always have to be the one to stand up and fight back. We see that in Jesus. And Paul says gentleness is something that should, should be part of our clothes that we put on. Number five, patience. And this isn't the kind of patience that you need if you go to Crystal for lunch. Because <laughs> you need a lot of patience if you go there, right? Um, I'm sorry if anybody works at Crystal. No offense, but it just takes a long time. This is not the kind of patience we're talking about here. This biblical patience is actually very, very, very much different than what we think of when we think about patience. Biblical patience is the opposite of revenge and resentment. It's not so, it doesn't have so much to do with time. It has to do with the way we respond to wrongs done to us. 1 Timothy 1.16 says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So if patience is the opposite of revenge and resentment, we see a perfect peace in Jesus. We see a perfect patience in Jesus. Because what God has chosen not to do is respond to our sin with revenge and resentment. He's shown patience in that. I think about like how this plays out in the life of a believer. I think about that person who just never seems to get angry. And do you know those people? You probably know people who you feel like gets angry all the time really fast. But then do you also know those people who it seems like they just never get angry? Or it takes a whole lot for them to get angry? And aren't you annoyed by them? You can be honest and say sometimes, oh, they annoy me so much because nothing ever makes them mad. I think maybe in them, in people like that, they've got this character of patience. That's, that's what patience is describing. Slow to anger, as James says. And the hurt and the treatment that other people bring on them never leads them to bitterness, never leads them to resentment. There's always an open door of relationship. And patience is important for us because without God's perfect patience, none of us would be believers. None of us would be saved. We would all be under the wrath that's poured out on sin. But his perfect patience chooses not to seek revenge on what has been done wrong to him. 
And when I think about this practically, I have to ask myself the question, how long does it take for you to get bitter towards someone? Like you can think about it in an element of time that way, I guess. A lack of patience means that you're, you're quick toward bitterness. You're quick toward resentment. And how quickly does resentment grow and how long does it live in you? Like we've, we're all hurt. We all get hurt. But I think the question we should ask ourselves is, am I still holding on to hurt that was inflicted on me by someone 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago? And if I'm still living in the pool of resentment where every time that person's brought up, every time I hear their name or every time I see them, it just, it just makes me angry. Like there's a responsibility that, that, that I have for that. I mean, that's not patience. That's the opposite of patience. Praise God, he did not do that with me. Because he could. Don't you sometimes feel like in your relationship with God, even as a believer, that sometimes you feel like God just wants to look at you and go, I am about sick of you. I am, I am almost sick and tired of dealing with you. Your perpetual repetitiveness, you keep doing the same thing over and over like, can you get a clue? I don't even know. I'm about done with you, and I'm about to write you off. That's how we sometimes live in this fear of that's how God's going to relate to us. But his patience is perfect. He doesn't do that. And so I should try in all of my effort to extend that same patience to other people. Because that's how grace comes out of my life. So those are the first five. I said there are two more. Look at verse 13. Those are all in verse 12. Verse 13 says, bearing with one another. All of those things. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That's pretty plain. That's pretty cut and paste, straightforward. There are no loopholes there. We have to be a forgiving people because we are a forgiven people. You can write that one in your notes. We have to be a forgiving people because we are a forgiven people. No other reason than that. Why should I forgive people? Why should I forgive them? Because you're forgiven. Why should I let them off the hook? Because you're forgiven. It's very basic. And forgiveness, in definition, is the canceling of an error or a debt. Okay, so Ephesians 4, 32. I've given you that verse. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That is the standard. And we are so good at trying to come up with reasons why we don't have to forgive each other. But there literally isn't one. There's, there's none. If we are people of grace, if we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, we, we have no loophole. 
Forgiveness is a requirement from us. And you say, well, Eric, you don't know how bad I was hurt. You don't know how bad somebody hurt me and what they did. I don't. But the thing that I think we learn about forgiveness when we study all the things that Scripture has to say about forgiveness is that it's something, it's something that we can extend to someone else even if they don't receive it. The bondage, sometimes we think that we're holding this other person captive as long as we don't forgive them. The only person we're holding captive is ourselves in unforgiveness. And there's a freedom from that unforgiveness that Christ has come to set us free from. So when I wallow in my unforgiveness towards somebody, I'm only going back and tying myself back up to the sin that Jesus just freed me from. There's a freedom in that. It's, uh, forgiveness is releasing the obligation of the debt, of the repayment. It doesn't, it doesn't cancel what they did. Forgiveness will never, you'll say, I'll never forget what they did. You're right, you won't. You'll never be able to forget about it. It's always going to be there. But in forgiveness, you're not saying, I'm going to make what they did to me disappear. I'm going to make my desire for them to pay for what they did to me. That's what's going away. You see the difference? And that's something that happens in us. And of course, we, we extend that forgiveness to each other. Everybody in this room wants to be forgiven of something right now. There is something going on in a relationship with somebody else that you know is broken and deep in your heart you want them to forgive you. You know what happens when a bunch of people who want to be forgiven begin to forgive one another? Cancels the penalty. Says, I'm not going to hold that over you anymore. I'm not going to hold you accountable for that. Yeah, you, you took it. It's like somebody who took, took my money and I canceled the debt. They've still got my money. But I'm, you don't have to pay me back. There's no more debt. Canceling the debt. That's forgiveness. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what we have to do for each other. And then look finally at verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Wow, we could say lots of stuff about love. But what Paul does here, you remember in verse 12, he says, so put all these things on. So it's like compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, Patience, forgiveness, all of these things are like clothes that every day when we wake up and say, I'm going to follow Jesus, these are things that we put on, that we practice in our life. And then he gets to the end and he says, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is like the belt. It's like the sash in the ancient world where they would put on all these layers of clothes and gar then they would have a sash that went around the outside and was tied and that held everything else in place. Paul says love is that thing that you put on that wraps around all of these other things and holds them in place. It makes everything fit together. 
It presents the Christian life the way it's supposed to. All of these things, like the, the ensemble isn't complete until you put on love. And you say, wow, Eric, that's, that all sounds really good, but that's stinking hard. I know it's hard. And just because I'm sharing with you what God's word says doesn't mean it's easy for me either. But that's the whole point of this series. It is hard. That's why grace is essential. That's why we need grace. That's why we can't do any of these things without grace. We couldn't come close to doing any of these things without the grace of God in our life, without the grace that God extends to us through salvation and forgiveness through Jesus. And then he implants that grace into our life and he empowers us to be able to obey him and to serve other people. And when we serve other people, what does graceful service look like? It looks like all of these things. So we have to practice it. Active role. He says, I have made you my holy, set-apart, beloved people now every day wake up and remember who you are and as you go out into the world to extend grace my grace to other people this is what you put on so summing up this whole series everything's been about grace grace is probably the most amazing thing that exists in heaven and earth When you just think about what grace is and what grace does and what grace has accomplished in our life and what it offers us as sinners, undeserving sinners, grace may be the greatest thing that that exists in heaven and earth. And what's even better is that God offers it to us for free. It's a gift. Were it not a gift, it would never be grace. I don't deserve to be able to live my life this way, but I can because of grace. And I pray this morning, my greatest desire is that you, if you have never given your life to Jesus the way these young men have and so many more before, what we saw in this pool is a picture of that putting to death of the old life and coming alive in Christ which is what he does. Grace does that. You have no active part in that. And, if you, and maybe what you've been doing is trying to put on the wrong clothes all the time. You've been trying to do it yourself. You've been trying to change your behavior. Behavior modification doesn't last past the grave. It's only in a changed heart, a renewed life, salvation, through Jesus and his death and on the cross and through the power of his resurrection and the forgiveness that he offers that we can come into relationship with him and be sons and daughters. If you've never trusted Jesus that way, if you've never quit trying to do it all by yourself and say, God, I'm finished. I, I, I'm, I need your grace and cried out for it. And forgiveness and compassion and mercy. All of those things are a part of grace. I pray this morning that you'll do it. I pray that the Holy Spirit's drawing you to do that.